So we are in this study that we're calling God-fearing men, and tonight we are going to look at um, an Old Testament figure by the name of Nehemiah. And we just won't be looking at Nehemiah tonight, we'll be looking at him in the weeks to come. Nehemiah is, um, is someone who I, I think is the epitome of a God-fearing man. He was a man of, um, he, he, he was a man that was used in a, in a great crisis. Uh, he was a man that we, we don't know a lot about his background, but we know that he was a God-fearing man. He, he was a man that was serious about the Lord was a man that we can look at and say, that's a man I want to emulate. I want to become like that man. His book speaks volumes to us where we are right now. Lives have been interrupted. Changes have been forced. Tyranny has sprung up across the nation. Uh, Character has been revealed. It's been an interesting time. As we look at Nehemiah, I've got three points for an outline, and let me go ahead and give them to you. First of all tonight, we're going to look at the biography and background of Nehemiah. Secondly, we're going to look at, we're going to look at the brutal facts, the brutal facts facing Nehemiah. Thirdly, we're going to look at uh, the building that Nehemiah was called to do, the building that Nehemiah was called to do. Let's go back to the uh, first point, the biography and background of Nehemiah. If you turn to the book of Nehemiah, and if you're in Revelation, you want to go left. (laughs) If you're in Genesis, you want to go to your right. If you're in Psalms, you're getting warm. Go to your left. And uh, if you're in Esther, go to your left. And there you'll find Nehemiah. Nehemiah uh, is, is a book that is tied closely in with Ezra, the previous book. But let's read the opening verses of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, this would be the capital of Persia, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. Now, we have, just reading those verses, we have no reference. We're just diving in. If you go to the end of chapter 1, you find out his vocation. So chapter 1, verse 11 Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. That means he had a very important position. The cupbearer to the king, 
was a position of great trust. Uh, there was a, a proclivity among the enemies of kings to assassinate them. And one of the favorite ways was poison in food or drink. So whoever was appointed cupbearer to the king was a man who was greatly trusted, was a man who um, was more than just a food taster, but someone who, because of their character and because of their life and because of their track record, uh, because of their um, gravitas, they were put in a position that every day would determine whether or not the king would live or die. It was a position beyond just being a food tester. They served as uh, confidants. They served even as administrative officials, even to the level of a prime minister. But it was a position of prestige. It was a a profession of power. It was a profession of danger. But it was one that you could only get to if you were greatly trusted by the king. So he was a cupbearer. Now, how did he get in that position? We don't know how. We're not told the backstory. But we do know some things about his background. We know that the king that he served, which we will meet in the next chapter, we know that that king was um, the stepson of Queen Esther. You remember her. So there, there are some clues to this man and his relationship. Now, if he was the stepson of Esther, God gave great favor to the Jews and saved the Jews through Esther and through Mordecai. And, and that was done through his father, This king undoubtedly showed favor later in chapter 2 to Nehemiah because undoubtedly of the favor that had been demonstrated by his father and that obviously the Lord was for the Jewish people and had a plan for the Jewish people. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Warren Wearsby is now with the Lord, but he was a tremendous pastor and Uh, He wrote Bible commentaries. Anything that Wiersbe wrote, you could trust it for its biblical accuracy. He was a great scholar, great communicator. He has pretty much a commentary on every book in the Bible. Uh, He rolled them out individually over the years, and then when they got them all together, you can buy the whole set but it was called the B-series. And uh, the commentary on Nehemiah is called Be Determined. But the subtitle nails it. The subtitle is Standing Firm in the Face of Opposition. This is why I want to spend time with Nehemiah. Because if anything has happened over the last year, the opposition against Christianity and against the gospel has increased dramatically. We've seen it before our very eyes. We have seen uh, 
We've seen movement in high places, and we're seeing it right now to take religious freedom, religious liberty, and pretty much neuter it. It is coming like a freight train. And we here, as men who are following Jesus Christ, we're, we're going, to, and we talked about this, we're going to face some things we have not had to face in this country until now. What we're facing is increased opposition. What we're facing is increased hostility. And the subtitle that Wearsby gave to the book, his book on Nehemiah, absolutely is spot on, standing firm in the face of opposition. That's why this God-fearing man, Nehemiah, has so much to say to us right now. So Nehemiah was a man who has lessons for us as we stand firm against the opposition that is coming because this is precisely what he had to deal with in his life. He did it well. He did it wisely. He was measured. He was dependent on the Lord. He trusted the Lord for wisdom. He made good decisions. He made wise decisions. He navigated this and was used by the Lord to accomplish some things that a lot of people thought it was absolutely impossible to accomplish these things. So he's a great role model. He's a great mentor for us. He had great integrity. He, and, and we'll see this as in the coming weeks. He was a man of great integrity. When you talk about a man of integrity, you're talking about a man whose public life and private life, they sink. Not too far from where we live is an old bridge. It's been there over 100 years. We used to drive across that bridge. But probably 15 years ago, they shut it down because of its lack of structural integrity. In other words, it was no longer safe to drive the car across the bridge that you've been doing for 10 or 15 years because it was losing integrity. It was, um, it was no longer congruent. The pieces no longer held together as they did when it was first designed. Uh, integrity, personal integrity, is, is congruency. The pieces add up. A man's public life adds up with his private life. And we'll see this in his life. Let, let, let's flip over to Job 28. There is a definition of what it means to be a God-fearing man in Job 28, 28. And it says this, And to man he said, God said, And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. So we don't use the term God-fearing man much anymore. But back years ago when it was used, he's a God-fearing man, it was a compliment. It was, a, um, it was an accolade. It was 
a term of respect. He's a God-fearing man. Uh, what does that mean to be a God-fearing man? Which you have right here. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. A man who feared the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, not the wisdom of man, but the wisdom of God. This is a man that you want to emulate. A God-fearing man is a man you look up to. A God-fearing man is a man that you can say, I want to be like him. I want my life to look like his life. But notice there's two pieces to it. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. So, a man who fears the Lord, he has wisdom, the wisdom of God, which is outlined in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. And he also is a man who departs from evil. So we have seen many cases where prominent Christian leaders are leading double lives. They have their public persona, and they are powerful speakers, they're articulate, they have uh, intellectual ability, they're persuasive, they answer questions, they, they uh, have great gifts. But it's tragic when we see, and, and, and we see wisdom, but it's tragic when you find out that they're missing the second piece, and the second piece is they don't depart from evil. They embrace evil. They use evil to dominate. They use evil to manipulate. They use evil to get what they want, which is contrary to the things of God. It's always a great disappointment when this happens, but it's been going on for a long time, and Jesus warned it about in Scripture and warned us about it in Matthew 7. We've discussed this before. A God-fearing man is not like that. When, when you've got... Job 28, 28, behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. What a, wise, what a wise communicator. What a wise man who can refute the philosophers who are atheistic. Yeah, but he didn't depart from evil. He's not a God-fearing man. He may be smart, but he's a fraud. We need to say that, we need to understand it. And we need to make sure that that's something that we're not allowing or permitting to go on in our own lives. Because you can be sure that your sin will find you out. You've heard, uh, you remember Proverbs 16, 12, whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> you remember that proverb? Actually, that's not in the book of Proverbs. Some advertising guy came up with that. Some marketing guy came up with that. Whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Actually, no. Because the scripture says you can be sure your sin will find you out. You can be sure it'll find you out. So you see, you don't want to live one way here and then another way in Vegas. And a God-fearing man lives the same way in his home, exactly the same way as when he's on a business trip in Vegas. There's integrity, structural integrity. He's a God-fearing man. Nehemiah was a God-fearing man. Now, he was used by God in a unique way. He was the cupbearer to the king. He had a political position, but this man had a heart for the Lord. Uh, so if we back up a little bit, 
and go to Ezra chapter 1. And I'm going to try to uh, summarize this very quickly. So we'll refer to, uh, to Ezra 1 here in just a moment. You recall Daniel and his three friends. So Daniel and his three friends were taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon, and the people were captive for 70 years. And then at the end of 70 years, God brought in a king by the name of Cyrus, and Cyrus was used by God to conquer the Babylonians, defeat them, and it was through him, and there are scholars that believe because of Daniel's position at that time that Daniel instructed Cyrus in the scriptures and that Daniel was able to show him and this and, and he already had a sense that God was leading him but God had chosen him he was a pagan king God had chosen him actually 150 years prior to his life in Isaiah 44 and 45 God said you're my chosen you're my anointed even though you don't know me and I'm going to use you to take my people who have been in captivity for 70 years and you're going to take them back to Jerusalem and that is exactly what happened so if you look in Ezra 1 verse 1 now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it into writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And then basically... He gives permission for the people to go back. Now that's all in that first chapter. So you've got the return now of the Jews going back to Jerusalem. They've been away for 70 years. Uh, some have called this the second exodus. The first exodus was when the people were enslaved in Egypt and the Lord used Moses after 430 years, to take them out and lead them into the promised land. That was the first exodus. This would be what we would call, you could call it the second exodus. The return happened in three waves. The first wave left with a man by the name of Zerubbabel. About 80 years later, there is another return, another group left Babylon uh, with Ezra as their commander-in-chief. Those two returns are covered in the book of Ezra. You get to the third return. The third return, 13 years later, was led by Nehemiah uh, back to the city that had been destroyed. So that's a little bit of historical context. So you got about 100 years, 110 years 
involving these three returns. And it was, it was this great man of God, Nehemiah, who the Lord put in his heart that God had chosen him to return the third wave back to the nation. All right? That's our history lesson for tonight. Um, let's go to the second point. And we've got to set this up so that we really see what's going on here. The second point we have is the brutal facts that were facing Nehemiah. If we take a look at Nehemiah chapter 1 again, let's go back over this one more time. It happened in the month of, I'm in verse 2 of chapter 1. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa the capital that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah, that's the homeland, that's where the first two waves were, that's where Jerusalem was, and some men from Judah came and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and survived the captivity and I asked them about Jerusalem. He was interested. That's, that's his nation. That's his uh, people. And he's a man of God. How are things going in Jerusalem with the rebuilding? How are the people doing? Give me a status. Give me a, give me a report. Here are the brutal facts. Verse 3, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. That was not good news. In fact, it was such devastating news. Note verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So let's put this together. Um, he loved his nation. He loved his country. When he found out what was going on, when he got the status report, it broke his heart. And, and what was the report? Again, the people that are there, the remnant that are, that are there in the province who survived the captivity, how are they doing? Well, they're in great distress. They are, they're struggling. They're dealing with uh, some calamity. And they're dealing with reproach. They have enemies. They're not doing well. They're hanging on by their fingernails is what's going on. It's, it's not a good picture. It's not an encouraging picture. In the book of Ezra, going back to Ezra, you remember where they returned? They rebuilt the temple. Smaller, not as you know, spectacular as Solomon's, but they built a temple. But that temple was without, was without protection for almost 100 years, for 90 years, because the wall to protect the temple had never been rebuilt and completed. So that temple was just sitting there like a sitting duck. Now, every, 
Every family, every head of a family thinks about the security of his family. Uh, many of us in this room, we have a, uh, what we call a security system. And when you set that security system at night before you go to bed, you put in four numbers, which is your date of your year of birth. <laughs> we, uh, and then when you are in the morning, when you're getting out of bed and it's time to go outside, you get four numbers, your year of birth, and you know how that works. Um, why do we have those systems? We're concerned about security. Some of us have cameras. Um, and you can spend more money if you want to, but we think about security. Even if you don't have that kind of system, you think about security. You lock the doors. Um, nations think about security. Every nation in the world has borders. except one, which is insane. And yet those who are against borders have bordered themselves in, in the capital of the United States. And many of them live in homes with walls and with security systems and with, you say that's nonsensical. Yes, it is. It's what happens to you when you lose the fear of the Lord. When you lose the fear of the Lord, you lose sanity in your thinking. You lose uh, rationality in your thinking. When you lose the fear of the Lord, you lose integrity because you think higher of yourself than you should. When you lose the fear of the Lord, uh, there can be no integrity. We, we've seen many, many examples. We see them numerous. We see them every day of someone who has been given power and they excuse themselves and they make laws and they make edicts yet they excuse themselves. They think that they're above it. They think that they are, they think that they are privileged. They think that they uh, are entitled. That is, uh, that's leadership that nobody wants to follow. That's leadership that no one respects. It is absolutely leadership that is self-absorbed. And it, someone who leads like that is no leader at all. They just have a title of leadership, but they're not a leader. They're a counterfeit. Nehemiah was grieved when he found out about the brutal facts. Um, because he, he was a man who loved his country. I came across an article a couple of weeks ago by a young Jewish woman, best I can tell, 30-ish, early 40s maybe, journalist, both her and her husband. Her name is Alana Newhouse. The article is entitled, 
Everything is broken. Everything is broken. Allow me to take a few minutes to read a few paragraphs. You'll see how it ties in to Nehemiah in a minute. In the summer of 2014, I gave birth to a baby boy. He was born with a perfect APGAR score after a very easy delivery. But my labor had not been smooth. In fact, throughout the day and a half of contractions, I believe there was something decidedly wrong. I also felt that way as I held him for the first time as he writhed violently um, in my hands. In a video taken about 10 minutes after he was born, I said to the camera as he continued to writhe, I said, does he seem like he's in pain to you? Talking to my husband. It took my husband and me three years to understand that in fact I was right that day in the delivery room. Our son was hurt. And it will take him years to heal, longer than it should have, and that is on top of the injustice of the original wound, though I thank God every day that we figured it out. The first breakthrough came when my husband David remembered about a book on brain science he had read a decade earlier by a doctor named Norman Deutsch. It changed our lives by allowing us to properly understand our son's injury and to understand why we couldn't manage to get a straight answer about it from any of the experts we had seen. I should say this, these people are not Christians, they're the Jewish faith. They, uh, but they were in the quandary of their lives here. It has been a tough road, but from that moment on, we at least knew what to do and why after reading the book. A year or so later, we met Dr. Doidge and his wife for dinner, and it is here that the story may become pertinent for you. After we ordered, I told Norman, Dr. Doidge, I had a question I'd been wanting to ask, and that I wanted his honest answer to it, even if it meant that I had done something wrong. I proceeded to relay to him the entire tale from the very beginning to that very moment of what it felt like to me in our Kafkaesque medical mystery journey. How was it, I then asked, that it took my husband and me, both children of doctors, both people with reporting and researching backgrounds, among the lucky who have health insurance, and with access through family and friends to what is billed as the best medical care in the country, how come it took years to figure this out and that in the end we only did so basically by accident? He looked at us sympathetically. He said, I don't know how else to tell you this, but bluntly, he said, there are still many good individuals involved in medicine, but the American medical system is profoundly broken. This is a medical doctor. When you look at the rate of medical error, it's now the third leading cause of death in the U.S., the overmedication, creation of addiction, the quick fix mentality, not funding the poor, quotas to admit from ERs, needless operations, the monetization of illness versus health, the monetization of side effects, a peer review system run by journals paid for by Big Pharma, the destruction of the health of doctors and nurses themselves by administrators who demand that they rush through 10 minute patient visits when so often an hour or more is required, 
and which means that in order to be successful, doctors must overlook complexity rather than search for it. Alana, he said, the unique thing here isn't that you fell down so many rabbit holes. What's unique is that you found yourself out at all. I had barely started processing this when Dr. Doidge moved to change the subject. He said, now, can I ask you something? Her and her husband are both journalists. How come so much of the journalism I read seems like garbage? This was quite the dinner. <laughs> David and I looked at each other, simultaneously realizing that the afternoon special we thought we were in was actually a horror movie. If the medical industry was comprehensively broken, as Norman said, and the media was irrevocably broken, as we knew it was, was everything in America broken? Was education broken? Housing, farming, cities? Was religion broken? Everything is broken. I think she's right. You look at where we are right now, everything is broken. Um, the witness of Christianity is broken because of high-profile individuals, celebrity pastors, those with uh, large ministries who did not depart from evil. Very gifted, very, uh, very articulate, very persuasive, but for whatever reason, their giftedness was primary and character wasn't even secondary. Character was very, very low on the list. It was all public persona. And th this has always been the case it's been the case since I can remember, but it's as though we've had an epidemic of this. Uh, we have churches that no longer preach and teach the whole counsel of God. We have pastors who pull their punches because they're afraid of the reaction they might get just by, just by reading the scripture and reading the truth. Um, we have churches that are more concerned with entertainment than they are with equipping. Although their doctrinal statement is absolutely on target. I can't think of one area in America that is not broken. Now, interestingly, her article, the title is Everything is Broken. The subtitle is And How to Fix It. It's, uh, I won't spend much more time on this, except to say that she, in, in the guts of the article, says we've all been flattened. It used to be that the predominant worldview was that the earth was flat. And if you oppose that view, there were great consequences and ramifications for you. Uh, she makes the point, and she makes it well, that in 
the times in which we are living, there are certain powerful entities that have flattened everything. And their power is so great and so intermeshed with other powerful entities that if you oppose that worldview, there will be consequences, you will be canceled, you will pay a price. So everyone, not everyone, most everyone utters the party line because it's the most comfortable way to go. At the end of the article, last paragraph, she said this, uh, sometimes the task of rebuilding, of accepting what has been broken and making things anew is so daunting that it can almost feel easier to believe that it cannot be done. But it can. The reason I read that article is that I think that's the message of Nehemiah. He was facing daunting circumstances, daunting opposition. They've been trying for 90 years to get that wall up. It hadn't been done. Yet, it needed to be done, and he felt like the Lord was working in his heart. He was grieving, he was praying, he was fasting. About what? About the situation there. Uh, everything was broken in Jerusalem. There was opposition from enemies. There was opposition from outside the camp. There was immorality inside the camp. It, uh, it, was, it was daunting to think about how to remedy this situation. It was, it was absolutely overwhelming. I think that's how many followers of Christ feel these days. How, to, how do we even take this on? How do we rebuild the walls? How, to, how do we refurbish the gates? Uh, those, those walls are the protections. It's amazing how much the Bible has to say about walls around a city. It's amazing how much the Bible has to say about the gates of a city. Um, we do what we can. We do the best of our ability to protect our homes and our families and our loved ones. But ultimately, our trust is in the Lord. But the Lord uses human instruments. Um, but, but is it not true that, it, that at times right now, it, it is almost... Um, if you're not careful, you can move to despair very quickly. Now, but, but here's the thing about that. You can't stay there. Not if you're a follower of the Lord. You, you absolutely cannot stay there. Because we're looking at things askew. We're, looking, we're out of sync. We're out of whack when we are verging on despair. Psalm 42. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you cast down within me, 
Those are good questions. We talked about this last week or the week before. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you cast down within me? And it's good to enumerate them, write them down, just put them on paper. Here's why, here's why, here's why, here's why. Okay. Next line. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his saving acts. He's still the Savior. He's still in charge. He's still in control. And that's how we work ourselves out of depression, how we work ourselves out of despair. That's how we, this is an impossible task. Uh, I, I, I can't take this on. Well, you're not by yourself. You're, listen, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of people in the body of Christ. And we are a remnant. And we're salt and we're life. And the Holy Spirit indwells those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but that of power, the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, no one can thwart him. God has not given us a, a, a spirit of fear, but that of power and love, the love of God. How much he loves me, how much he loves you. Because of, <laughs> because of sheer grace. We love him because what? He first loved us. He came and sought us out. We didn't seek him. He sought us. He loves us with an everlasting love. Nothing can separate us from his love. So you got the power of God. You got the love of God. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but that of power and love and sound thinking. So you see, as we face, when everything seems to be broken... If everything's broken, that's daunting. That's overwhelming. That can paralyze you. That can freeze you. But you cannot become passive. You have to keep moving and following what the Lord says we're supposed to do next. Now, this is why we're going to hang around in Nehemiah for a while. Because we're going to see the steps that God gave him as he was assigned this task of going and rebuilding the wall and taking on the enemies and taking on the immorality within the camp. Uh, it hadn't been done in decades. That was his task. And you know what? God gave him favor and it happened. This is the perspective that we have to have as we move ahead. And we're going to look at this guy. And what the Lord gave to him, the Lord will give to us. The circumstances are different, but it's the same Lord who offers us his wisdom, who will teach us how to navigate situations that are beyond our ability and our strength. The, the key is to keep our eyes on the Lord and on his word. And may I say this? And the key is to depart from evil. He prays a prayer in, after grieving in verse 4. He prays a tremendous prayer of confession and of repentance. And then, beginning in verse 10, 11, you get a glimpse of what God's putting in his heart. Um, Verse 5, 
I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Now I want to say this. Did you see that? And keep his commandments. If you're not departing from evil, listen, we all sin. Sin dwells within us. But there's a difference from sinning and practicing sin. You, you know what I'm talking about. There are some who practice sin because they want to get better at it. Because they have no interest. They have no interest in pleasing the Lord. They have no interest in departing from sin because sin gives them pleasure. Sin gives them the benefits they want. And so they practice it. And they hide it. And they prey upon those who are weak and those who they can manipulate in order to get their way because they are motivated by selfish ambition. They don't care about anyone else, the glory of God, or the care of anyone else. It's just about them. So those who live a double life and there's no integrity and there's no congruency, they can pray, they can pray this prayer. But God will not respond to it. Because God does not respond those who violate consistently on purpose, Deuteronomy 28, 28. Once again, we all sin. We all struggle with sin. But the difference is, there's a difference between the Christian man who practices sin and the Christian man who fights sin. That's the difference. A God-fearing man is not free of sin, but he fights it. And when it happens, he confesses it. You see? You see the difference? It's all a matter of the heart. O Lord, verse 6, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now day and night. On behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel which we have sinned against you. This is why they were in captivity in the first place. Uh, I and my father's house have sinned. Seven, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though... Those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens. I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Now, we'll see, we'll see the plan in chapter 2, but you get the first intimations of it in 11, O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. What man? The king. Because in chapter 2, he's going to approach the king with a plan to let him go and rebuild the wall and glorify God. You say, well, Steve, that's all well and good and fine, but 
What does God want me to do? Am I a little discouraged because of what's gone on in our nation? Am, am I having trouble because everything is broken? Everywhere I look, everything is broken. So what do I do as a Christian man? Well, I've been thinking about this myself. I think our job as Christian men is we're to be builders too. In fact, if you look at Deuteronomy 6 very carefully, it's addressed to the fathers and grandfathers of Israel. And Deuteronomy 6 is very, very clear. You see, so I don't think I'm going to be around 30 years from now. I just don't. Um, I don't know how much time you think you have, but uh, I look around. Most of the guys in this room, um, well, you need new shocks and struts. You need new upholstery. <laughs> you need a new timing belt. You know, we're getting some miles on the tires, okay? That doesn't mean we can't be used by God. It means we can be used by God. Because we've got some miles on the tires called experience. We've been through a lot of, uh, through many dangers, toils, and snares, as John Newton would say in his hymn. We've seen the faithfulness of God over the years in our lives. We have, uh, I, I think we are called to build not necessarily rebuild the nation. Now, if God calls you to run for office or something, so be it. If that's your calling, wonderful. We need some Daniels. For most of us, I think it's going to be a little bit different. In Deuteronomy 6, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land which you are going over to possess, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit, and, and grandsons, because he's talking to grandfathers. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. I'll tell you what I think about my life. At this point in my life. I think my job I don't know if I can rebuild the nation. I'll do what I can do. That's not my emphasis. My, my, my emphasis is to rebuild the young men that are in our family so that they can be equipped to take on what's coming when I'm dead and gone. I think that's your job. We are to, and you say, well, how do you do that? It's right there in the text. Do, do I invite everybody over every Thursday morning for 4.30 for pancakes and, uh, no. I, don't, I mean, I'm not doing that. What does it say? It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your might, all your soul, all your strength. It's right in there. 
These words I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You put the scripture inside. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You know the key word in fathering and the key word in grandfathering is with. It's with. These are men who are with their sons and their grandsons. Now, can you be with them 24-7? No, and you don't need to be. But as we get older in life, I think our job is to rebuild sons and grandsons so that they can become the men who lead um, your family See, what we're talking about is starting your own nation. Now, I realize when a nation falls apart, you know, Joshua said this, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Because a lot of people in the children of Israel were not following the Lord. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. So no matter what this Christian group does or this Christian group or this, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Jesus is our king. The Bible is our constitution. And I'm going to live according to that. And if it costs me, it costs me. I want the wisdom of God. I want the discernment of God. I want uh, the input of, of wise brothers in the body of Christ and sisters. But I'm going to follow the Lord. And what I want to do is I want to have enough time with the young ones it doesn't mean that you're always teaching them biblical truth, but it means you're with them, and as you go through the course of life with them, situations come up and you teach. I was recently talking with a young man, and he told me that he was verging on, as he put it, losing it. He's, he's in a situation of great pressure. He's probably, well, I don't know, late 30s. And uh, he's in a job, and this job, he has certain gifts and abilities that are being overlooked. He is being asked to do things that he is not gifted to do. He's not wired to do them. But in order to keep the job, he must go ahead and do what he's not gifted to do because he feels hemmed in. He's not advancing. He's not motivated. He's not progressing in life. He sees himself not moving ahead. He sees himself backing up and going the wrong direction. And, as we, and, and, he, and he said, I, I'm, I'm on the verge of losing it. I said, well, let me tell you where I was when I was your age. I was in a chapter that was the second most difficult chapter of my life. My early 30s were the most difficult chapter. Then I had a year of refreshment. And then I went into the second most difficult chapter of my life, which went from 36 to 40. And I was in a ministry situation where my strengths were, uh, 
were not uh, seen nor appreciated, and I was expected to work and do tasks for which I was not cut out because I was compared with other guys that had those abilities, my weaknesses were their strengths, and I was expected to perform and act like they did. And it was an absolute no-win situation. And uh, on the day prior to the weekly elder meeting, uh, I had a tightness in my chest. And I wondered if I would last another week. And then one day, I read a book in a Christian bookstore on a guy who had studied Christian leadership in scripture and church history. And he talked about how God goes, there is a leadership pattern that God takes men through to prepare them for their life's work that usually comes 40, 41, 42, 43, ballpark. That's what he calls convergence. It's where God puts you into a situation where your strengths are maximized and your weaknesses are covered. But the chapter prior to that is usually one of the most difficult chapters you ever go through because you are overlooked, you're not appreciated, you're not advancing, you're falling behind, you're not making any progress, you feel like a failure. And as I was reading this guy's book, he said, I'm giving you these different phases of leadership because I want you to be, be able to identify where you are. And as I read that, I thought, hmm, I'm in that phase right before convergence. And I was, but a year later. I told that young man that. I said, the hand of God is all over. Don't lose heart. That was my job. The older men are to teach the younger. That's your job. Father, we ask you to enable us, help us, give us wisdom, not to lose heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.